Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about sarcomas with Dr. Hari Deshpande. Dr. Deshpande is an associate professor of medicine and medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. I don't think many lay people have ever heard of sarcomas. Uh, I think you'd probably be correct. They're very rare compared to cancers that um, other people treat. I'll just give you a couple of numbers. So we see over one and a half million cancers a year. That includes the leukemias and lymphomas that you see, but also cancers like lung cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer that most people have heard of. And they account for something like one million cases. Sarcomas, on the other hand, we only see 15,000 cases across the whole country, and we split those into two main types. Wow. So those more common cancers that people are familiar with, like lung cancer and breast cancer, those are called carcinomas, right? That's correct, yes. So what constitutes a sarcoma? Why is a sarcoma, or in what way is a sarcoma different than a carcinoma? So sarcomas are cancers of what we call mesenchymal tissues. Oh, my, Harry. (laughs) So, of course, we like to give everything a long name to make us sound more intelligent. Exactly. (laughs) You have to earn your paycheck some way, right? But this is basically cancers of bone, um, muscle, tendons, uh, even fat. Kind of connective tissue? That's correct, Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. And is that fundamentally different than cancers of, I guess, what, gland tissue? Is that what most of the other ones are? It does seem as though it is. So Mm. they don't tend to respond the same way to the same kind of treatment. Okay. So sarcomas, um, connective tissue cancers, if you will. And you mentioned a bunch of tissues. You mentioned bone and you mentioned tendons, I think, and cartilage, I guess, would be among them. Does, Does each one have its own sarcoma? Well, we split them broadly into two main types. So we have sarcomas of the bone in one category, and then everything else we call sarcomas of soft tissue. Now, the bone does include cartilage, so there's a little bit of... Uh, <laughs> Semi-soft. Know, exactly, right, right. Gotcha. Why, why is that distinction uh, put in place? Well, mainly because of the, the treatment option. Bone or osteosarcomas are treated mainly with chemotherapy and surgery. And they're they're very chemosensitive, especially the osteosarcomas. Whereas the soft tissue sarcomas, surgery and radiation are the main treatments. Hmm. We sometimes give chemo, but it's a little less sensitive as a group. So biologically, it sounds like they really are different. That's correct. Gotcha. And do we, we don't have any idea why that is? Um, no, I know there's a lot of very clever people who've done research into it, and uh, hopefully we'll get more information. But so far, no uh, no, no real thoughts that way. No. Gotcha. Um, 
So I don't know. It sounds scary. Uh, I guess some of these sarcomas of the bone might present in bones that are really important, like bones that help us walk or use our arms or something like that. Yes. And that's one of the problems with this disease. So whether it's bone or soft tissue, they can occur in bones like your arms or your legs where I know I get joint pains all the time and just uh, say, oh, it's nothing. And unfortunately, by the time people have a sarcoma that's found, it's often quite, uh, it's progressed quite far. Hmm. And so some of those people might require amputations? Um, I, I think the surgeons who are the best people to talk about that will tell you that over the years, they've been moving away from amputations. So wherever possible, they'll try and do something called a limb sparing surgery. Now, most sarcomas, if not all of them, if the surgeon is going to try and remove them, need what we call a wide margin. In other words, if you see someone who has a sarcoma and you, you say, well, I saw the actual lump and it was only as big as my hand, but the operation they did was twice as big as that. And that's because they have to make sure they get all of the sarcoma out plus some normal tissue around it. Now, if it's possible to do that without an amputation, then they'll do it. Mm. But if, the, it's, if it involves the joint, then sometimes then they have to do an amputation. I mean, I remember well uh, when I was a kid growing up, um, you know, Ted Kennedy's son, Ted Kennedy Jr., as I recall, right. um, had uh, had an osteosarcoma. I assume it was an osteosarcoma. It was, it was quite big news. That's correct. He um, he was diagnosed and treated in, in Boston, and he got the standard treatment, which is chemotherapy, then surgery, then more chemotherapy. And luckily, he's done very well. Well, so. and he's a great leader in our state. Yes, that's yeah. correct. So yeah. that's really a happy story. Yeah. And I, yeah. hope I, I don't think we're divul divulging any confidence because this was national news. Right, right. Um, but that's a, that was really back... I'm thinking in the rather the primitive days of oncology, I'm guessing. I, I feel like I was a teenager at best when that happened. I, I think it was the 1980s oh, okay. um, and or maybe the, the 70s. Yeah. But you're unfortunately, in one way, you're correct because the treatment has really not changed very much since then. We use the same medicines, methotrexate, doxorubicin, and cisplatin that we used back then, we use now. Those are chemotherapy drugs. That's correct, yes. Uh -huh. in, intravenous chemotherapies. Yeah. And um, so he was a kid or a teenager, as I recall, yeah. at the time. Is, is that common? So osteosarcoma and other bone sarcomas, like there's a cancer called a Ewing sarcoma, mm. are mainly cancers of childhood. Uh, but we do see them up until the age of around 50. So they can occur in adults, mm -hmm. but typically in children, yes. And is that true also of these soft, soft tissue sarcomas that you spoke about? Um, now, they have more of a variation. So I mentioned soft tissue sarcomas. There's actually 50 different subtypes, and that's why it's so hard for fellows to learn. Those are the training doctors who we we train in uh, Yale because not only is it a rare 
cancer to start off with, there's 50 different types. So 50 out of 15,000, right? Exactly, right. Wow. Well, actually, 50 out of 12,000, because <laughs> 3,000 of the bone and 12,000 of the soft tissues. I hope our audience is keeping a scorecard <laughs> uh, right. Um, but some of them, like rhabdomyosarcomas, are mainly in children. You're just saying these things because they're complicated <laughs> and they make you sound smart. They, I've been practicing very hard. <laughs> right, so that's a muscle cancer, right? That's correct. And then there's other ones. Uh, there's one that we call an undifferentiated. In other words, we can't put it in an actual category. But that's much more common in older adults, so over the age of 50. Well, I can imagine that if you have 50 subtypes, and just uh, so I can do the math in my head, let's take it out of 15,000. Yeah. So that would be, is that about 300 of each type per year? It would be if they were... If they were all, equally distributed. Exactly. Right. So, so we do see some more than others, but those are the sort of numbers that we're talking about. So here, it must so. be very hard to study... Uh, such individually rare cancers and really try to figure them out, assuming that they have significant differences that overwhelm their similarities biologically. I think that's the big problem over the years in trying to get a standard treatment for all these cancers. We've tended to lump all of them together in studies. And so if you look at some of, especially the older sarcoma studies, they'll have, they'll be very... Um, we have a name for it, and I know you're going to criticize me for this. but It's not a criticism, sorry. <laughs> they're very heterogeneous. In other words, they have lots of different types in, and so people will criticize those studies to say, well, you know, it wasn't just one type of soft tissue. It was many different types, and you can't get uh, a good decision from a study like that. Yeah. So. Of the six-syllable words that we use, <laughs> heterogeneous, I think, is probably okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, at least I think it's funny. <laughs> so, yeah, that's challenging. And, and um, of course, I'm sure there are many centers, uh, just speaking of the referral centers, uh, never mind uh, community oncology centers, but there, there are many uh, centers uh, among which these 300 or so cases of each disease get distributed. So yeah. uh, even the biggest centers, like, say, Memorial Sloan Kettering or MD Anderson, must yeah. not have so many in one place. Uh, yes, that's true. And so we really have to work together. Um, I know... That's anathema to academic physicians, isn't it? It's it's difficult, but, uh, it's, but I think it's something that we have to do. So. Anathema, by the way, has five syllables, so I'm guilty <laughs> yeah. as well. <laughs> so how do you do that? I mean, do you just uh, sort of send out a kumbaya email and uh, say, hey, uh, I, I think we all need to work together? Um, well, there's a few mechanisms. So sometimes if um, a very good medicine looks very promising, then the company that makes that medication will choose sites all over the country, sometimes all over the world, to run a trial. Um, one example of that was a trial that was actually run by Sloan Kettering physicians, uh, Bill Tapp in Sloan Kettering, and it was the first time that any medication had really proven to be better than our standard treatment for probably over 30 years. 
Um, that was a, a medicine, again with a long name, that's called Alaritumab. Right. <laughs> oh, that's, that's bad. A, yeah, that is a bad one. <laughs> but uh, it's a good medication. It's it was. It seems to be very promising. It's still not quite accepted as the standard, but it's showing a lot of promise in combination with a standard chemotherapy. So it's not used by itself. And uh, no, it has to be used with chemotherapy. So. And, and if I've got my hat on correctly, because you said it ended in a MAB, this must be some kind of antibody drug. Th- that's correct. It's an antibody against something that people feel is very important in some sarcomas. Um, it's called PDGFR alpha. Okay, that's a that's a receptor for a growth factor. That's correct. Yes, uh-huh. and uh, that's important in sarcomas. It seems to be, and um, it was a trial that had sarcomas, not just one of the fifty types, but any of the fifty types could be could have been included hmm. in that particular trial. Or what, when I say any, there are a couple of exceptions. Sure. Yeah. Right. And so, what kind of results were found with that? Um, what they found was uh, normally when you treat people with what we call metastatic sarcoma or stage 4 sarcomas, the average survival is just over a year usually, which is not very good and something we always trying to improve on. When they gave people the chemotherapy plus the antibody, then the survival went up to 26 months. Oh, that's quite a big difference. It was a very big difference. And this is what we call a phase two trial. I know you're familiar with that, but basically it's not a trial that is a definitive, this is better than that trial. Mm -hmm. And you always have to do a phase three trial to confirm those numbers. And that's being done as we speak. I see. And was it hard to get um, all these hospitals and physicians to work together? Um, Well, Yale wasn't part of that particular study, but I looked at the um, journal where it was published, and I was amazed at the cooperation that everyone had in in doing this particular trial. It was completed very quickly, so I think people were very focused on getting patients onto that particular trial. I see, and um, is this drug FDA approved now, or that's awaiting the phase three? No, the results were so compelling, the FDA approved it, but with the condition that if the phase three was not um, positive, then they may rescind it. Have to redraw it. Well, that's really uh, fascinating to hear such important progress, which we hear, unfortunately, uh, too infrequently. Right now, we're going to have to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about advances in clinical trials for sarcomas with Dr. Hari Deshpande. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about genetic testing, which can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Patients that are considered at risk receive genetic counseling and testing so informed medical decisions can be based on their own personal risk assessment. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers. Interdisciplinary teams include geneticists, genetic counselors, physicians, and nurses who work together to provide risk assessment and steps to prevent the development of cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. 
I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Hari Deshpande. We've been discussing a group of cancers known as sarcomas. Hari, that was a really fascinating uh, story you told uh, prior to the break about this antibody drug that really has made a remarkable difference, it seems, or at least uh, in preliminary data, has made yeah. a remarkable difference. And, you know, I, I know um, uh, that in many of these clinical trials, um, research studies, the uh, statistics are driven by improving kind of the average length that people right. with one treatment or another uh, survive. And, of course, that's important. And, and then you get statistics like, well, it's a 50% improvement in survival, which yeah. sounds great to patients, but it sometimes you know, neglects the dirty little secret that in many studies, and I, I don't know about this, you know, nobody is cured forever or that there's there's very few people who are long-term survivors. So do we have any sense for this kind of drug, um, whether it's improving the number of people who are really long-term in remission? Um, I haven't seen the, the very long-term data, but the data I've seen suggests that it's still not a cure for the disease. Right. The curves seem to be dropping down at the end, and yeah. uh, it is unfortunate, though. So. Well, I don't mean to be Debbie Downer, but I, yeah. <laughs> you know, no, I, I think unfortunately we 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 raise the rah rah flag for a lot of these things, and it's right. important. But I think patients don't always uh, don't really always get the whole picture. But right. uh, no right. doubt, uh, an average survival of what did you say, nine months to twenty something months? Uh, it's it was about fourteen to twenty six. Yeah, that's yeah, I mean yeah. that's incredible, and I, yeah. I'd sign up for that for sure. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And I guess uh, some of our um, Listeners may have known people who've been treated with other kinds of antibodies. I know there's a Herceptin drug for breast cancer and a variety of drugs that are used for lung cancer yeah. along uh, those lines that have made also a very remarkable impact, I think, on some of those diseases. Definitely, yes. Yeah, so this is exciting. And, and the other area, of course, that we hear a lot about these days, particularly in some of the more common carcinomas, are these immune-modulating drugs, which have really changed things for a lot of people. Is, is anything going on there with sarcomas? Um, there are, there have been some trials. So most of them are pretty small trials. Um, there's a, there were a couple that were reported at ASCO. That's our annual meeting where many of the trials that are being done all over the world are presented. And there were two that looked at different immune therapies. So one was pembrolizumab. That's a, a, a single antibody against one of the proteins that people feel is important in the immune system attacking cancers. Mm -hmm. And the other one was using a combination of two of those types of medicines, ipilimumab and nivolumab. And both of them seem to suggest that some sarcomas may respond better than others. Now, remember, these are trials that have maybe 10 people with each sarcoma. So and probably they're advanced cancers, usually. Exactly. And, and it's hard to really say these are definitive trials, but I think the results were compelling enough that one of the uh, types I mentioned, the pleomorphic or undifferentiated sarcomas. That's the type we see older. most in older. I remember. Yes, yeah. that's correct. And so those, I think, have the best chance of responding to immunotherapy. That's what most, most people feel. Well, glimmers of hope are always important. And as a clinical researcher, I hear a glimmer of hope like that. And I'm already 
starting to think about the next trial where, well, let's yeah. put that together with your uh, anti-receptor drug and yeah. your chemo or something like that. At least I'm sure yeah. I'm not unique thinking that way. No, I think that's how many people are thinking. Yeah. So, Hari, let's get back to this kind of group think and the group strategizing. Yeah. Um, I think before the show, if I understood correctly, you were telling me that there is some kind of new group forming for sarcomas? Uh, yes. It's not that new, actually. So back in uh, 2003... Um, that five, seems like just yesterday It to me. does. It does. Remember Y2K? <laughs> I remember it well. I, <laughs> I even have a tie to commemorate that. The they, Y2K. They Do actually you... called it Tie 2K. <laughs> oh, and we both survived. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but just after that, five big cancer centers got together and formed this group. They called it SARC or SARC. For sarcoma. Um, right. Got it. And um, it's it's gone really from strength to strength. So I was very interested in joining this group. And so we joined as an institution two years ago now. And we have our first trial with them opening Hopefully soon. Uh, there's a lot of red tape, as you know, sure. to opening trials, and uh, it's taken a little while. But that's for one very rare type of sarcoma that hopefully will be um, opening a trial here. Hmm. So um, how does this work? So you have a variety of groups. Um, is it six now, or are there many more? Oh, there are many more now. In, in the SARC. Yeah. yeah. So, so a group of institutions working together? Right, right. And so what they do, and their head office is... Um, I think in Michigan, I may be wrong about that, but uh, but they will get together with the board of directors and say, we have enough funding to open this trial in, say, five places or six, and they'll choose institutions that are interested in it and open it in those particular institutions. But who comes up with the ideas, and what's the governance out of choosing which is the best idea? Um, it, well, to be honest with you, any of the members can come up with ideas, and I of see. course it has to be vetted by the people who are involved in the in the SARC administration, but but they're a very nice group to work with. That's yeah. great. And how is such a group funded? Um, you know, that is a good question. I know they do get uh, philanthropic funds, um, but, um, you know, I that's something I didn't right. look at before the show. So. <laughs> no, gotcha. I'm just curious because... Uh, uh, you know, our listeners probably don't know, but the National Cancer Institute funds many large interactive groups like this oh, right. that tend to go by regional names like the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group or the Southwestern Oncology Group, which is yeah. kind of always funny because many of the centers like Yale are in the Southwestern Group right. and many Eastern, uh, Stanford happens to be in the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group, and those <laughs> get federal funding primarily. Right, and actually I do know that Sark got a what they call a SPORE grant. Oh. Oh, wow. Uh, for, I think it was $12 million over five years. Now, that was back in 2012. So they're just sort of coming to the end of that. So that was federal funding that they applied for. I, they must have done, yes. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's great. Yeah. Um, and I also understand that you are a leader in kind of um, setting standards for how sarcoma patients should be treated. Um, yes. Uh, that's uh, something called the VIA, VIA Pathways. And it's a program, actually, that is developed centrally 
for institutions to use. So Yale is one of the institutions that uses the VIA pathway. So I'm one of the co-chairs for the sarcoma committee. So basically what we do is we look through all the guidelines. As you know, we have some national guidelines like ASCO and the National Cancer Network, NCCN, um, that will come up with this is the best way to treat certain diseases, and sarcomas are no exception. But then when you're actually entering the orders in our electronic ordering system that we have all over the country, at, at Yale we use one called EPIC, um, then it, there's no actual guidelines to say this is the actual medicine that you should use. So what VIA is trying to do is make it a little easier for physicians to choose what is the medication with the best evidence behind it. Hmm. Now, that obviously has its problems. Everyone is different. Every patient is different. So sometimes you may want to stray away from the guidelines. But if you do, you have to have a reason for why you didn't follow the, what is considered the best evidence. So. Hmm. And we all know that the evidence that we use to um, come up with such guidelines is not always as strong as some other evidence. Exactly. And I think that's why when we make these guidelines, and I was just at the committee meeting, which is a uh, a, um, a, a webcast that we all sign into, mm -hmm. uh, you'd be surprised how much debate there was over every single decision that we made. It just goes to show that you've got some very smart doctors out there treating sarcoma who know the data very, very well and um, will really insist on finding the best treatment for their patients. So. Yeah, well, it really doesn't surprise me. I've uh, served on such uh, similar committees uh, in leukemias and... Um, you know, people are very passionate, and people who are leaders in in academic institutions are very passionate. And uh, I find that many people can look at the same data and feel very differently about it. That's exactly the discussions that were held. Yes. Uh, yeah. And if it if the data agrees with my opinion, then it's a great study. <laughs> and if it doesn't agree with my opinion, well, maybe there are problems with that study. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Although we're all seeking truth, right? Right. Right. And I I think as long as we don't feel it's a bad decision. I think it's something that we can put on the pathway. That's the sort of way I was trying to chair that uh, discussion. Yeah, so, that's great. Yeah. But, um, you know, so at the end of the day, who polices the pathway? So, you know, we have physicians in our network and they um, are treating patients with various cancers or in your case, sarcomas, and uh, they choose something on or off the pathway. So, you know, I think it's great that they're getting advice from the pathway, right? But yeah. is there any, is there any um, consequences of being on the pathway, not being on the pathway for the physician, for the patient? Um, well, as an institution, Yale, for instance, we're expected to use the pathway for the majority of our chemotherapy ordering. So I think it's over 80% mm. has to be on the pathway. So I chair the meeting with uh, Dr. Chow from City of Hope. Um, it's nice to have a meeting where we can bring the two coasts together. So. Especially if you can travel to uh, California. <laughs> yeah, would be unfortunately, even it was a, a telephone call. It's a beautiful yeah. campus at City of Hope. It's near Pasadena. Oh, I've never been there. That's lovely. I, you should go. Yes, I'll try and, I'll try and finagle a meeting over Good there. Good idea, yeah. <laughs> but um, what 
what happens is if we don't use the pathway, then VIA has metrics where they'll say, okay, 50% of the people for synovial sarcoma, which is one of the types, didn't use the pathway. Maybe we should change the pathway. So I they, see. Yeah. So if people are just not using it because they're too lazy, that's one thing. But if they're not using it because there's a good reason, then I think it means that we have to change it. Well, I think that's really interesting because if you're using the pathways to reinvent the pathways <laughs> and to seek... Uh, kind of a better standard of care, it sounds like, yeah. um, you know, that's very appealing. Yeah. Uh, if you're being punished because you're going off the pathway for some reason, you know, yeah. then, then I wonder how that's being helpful. Right. And I, well, I think there is that side of it. So I think insurers and Medicare will look at these pathways and say, unless institutions are using best evidence, then we may not give the same benefits to those institutions as ones that do use those. Mm. So I, I'm not part of the economic side of it, but I'm sure that's part of it. Dr. Hari Deshpande is an associate professor of medicine and medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.